Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, and we have a very full show for you today. You'll hear from Yankees Gold Glove winning shortstop Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who explains all the aspects that go into making him a top defensive player. Red Sox manager Alex Cora spent five and a half minutes of his press conference on Tuesday talking about his team's defensive improvements. Our VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, and I will talk about that. Bobby's got his experience to share in running player development for the Pirates. And we'll also talk about Hunter Green and the best baseball lesson that Bobby ever learned. And then Howard Bryant has a new book out, a biography of baseball legend Ricky Henderson. He'll share some stories and thoughts with us. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. Yankee shortstop Isaiah Kiner-Falefa is our guest. Isaiah, the first player in Major League history to play at least 50 career games at catcher, shortstop, and third base. We have been following him for a while because we track minor league defensive runs saved. And when we look at that stat, players that have done well in the minors, have tended to do well in the majors. Isaiah was among the, the best in the minor leagues. Him and Matt Chapman are kind of our, our guys that we like we like to talk up when we talk about our minor league stats. Isaiah, I guess the first thing I would ask you is, is simply, what's your defense origin story? Like, how did you learn to, to become that it became such an important part of your game? Just growing up, you know, I, I was a light hitter growing up in Hawaii. I was smaller than everybody else. Um, I had to shoot the four hole. I had to, I had to hit ground balls up the middle and line drives everywhere. Power wasn't really a part of my game, so defense was where my pride and joy was. I remember going to University of Hawaii baseball games, and they had a shortstop named uh, Brian Finnegan. He played with the Cleveland Indians for a little bit uh, in the minor league system, and he would just make highlight plays and highlight plays. And, you know, growing up in Hawaii, we don't have big leagues. So just going to those games, that's all we got to see. And seeing him make those plays, I I wanted to do something like that. And, you know, the more and more I got into baseball, I'd see guys like Derek Jeter. Ozzie Smith was a guy that I'd watch his highlights over and over, and I just – knew if I wasn't going to have a lot of power, um, you know, that was a way to get to the next level and keep my baseball career going. So I really dug and dug and dug into the defensive part of the game and just the little things, backdooring people and all the things that uh, people don't think about. So I take a lot of pride in my defense and, um, you know, I had a lot of good coaches along the way to help me out with that. What's the first really great defensive play that you can remember making? My first one ever was probably, uh, we were 16 years old in Arizona, Team USA trip. I wasn't on Team USA, but it was a Team USA tournament. There's a one-hop line drive up the middle, and I did a spin play. And ever since then, that's kind of been the, my spin play that I've even done in the big leagues a bunch. And then we go into my senior year in high school, and I get like this backhand diving play that kind of you know helped us win the game. And ever since then, those are like my two plays that you know I still make to this day. And uh, it's just funny because once I made those, I was like, wow, yeah, I don't, I don't think a lot of people would make them. So just having made those plays really gave me the confidence to, to keep going. So how has your spin play evolved from then to now? It's got a lot better, a lot better. I, I've watched um, some Jimmy Rollins highlights up the middle. And he was one of the guys who, you know, especially playing on AstroTurf, he would spin around and make a good throw. Another guy I'd watch making that play was uh, Michael Young. Michael Young was one of us, a sliding guy. And I'm kind of a slider. People, some people say don't go down to your feet or don't go on your knees, stay on your feet. But I just think it's easier to pop back up. And if you misread it, your body's behind the ball. So I always believe in the lower you are, the more chance of getting a better hop and finishing the play. So it's interesting that you bring that up because right before we came on, I looked this up. We track the number of times that a player slides or dives for a ball. Last year, your number was in the 40s. And I know that you learned, you said you learned sliding by watching J-Roll. This year, the number is in the 20s. And I'm curious if playing every day last year taught you 
about preserving your body as it relates to, to that? And if that's something that you're more cognizant of as you've matured as a defender? Yeah, a hundred percent. I, the, the, the big differences and the big changes I made within this year is to not really exert everything too fast. I would say, I think the 60 game season really kind of sped me up a little bit. So going into last year, I think within the first two months of the season, I probably was at a ridiculous amount of defensive runs saved. And as I went on through the year, it didn't really change. I think it went up a little bit, but as I made errors, it kind of just stayed the same. And I think right now, I don't know what it is now, but I think yesterday I checked, it was like three. So that was a big shocker to me because of where I was last year, but I ended at the same kind of at the same number. So I was trying to take the more of a slower approach this year. You know, I was watching Carlos Correa and every time he gets to the backhand, he's one bouncing the ball. And then I'd go back and watch Ozzy Smith highlights. You know, he'd get that backhand and it was all about saving the arm. He'd get the ball, get it right out, a nice one hop. So I think uh, when I got into September last year, I think I made six throwing errors and that was all because of fatigue. So I think if I could, you know, smoothen that out when I get to that point of the year, going in October, the playoffs, give me a better chance of uh, winning another Go Glove and um, just helping the team go into October. Because last year, if I was to go into October with how I was doing, I, you know, I don't know if I'd be able to reach first base. So I just took that into consideration with the way I approached this season and um, off to a slow start defensively so far, but there's a lot of time to, to make up and improve. But yeah, as, as you pointed out, you said you checked your defensive run save recently. Your, your arrow would be trending up for sure at this point in the season. I always like to ask guys to walk us through one play. I found one that was on your Twitter feed and it was about a year ago. A 3-6-5, turn to third, get him sleeping double play, by the way, against the Yankees. You also had a really good uh, double play on Luke Voigt. Can you walk us through either of those? Yeah, the first one, uh, I think DJ was hitting and I knew that DJ can, you know, the, with the way the play worked out was hitting the ball to first base. It was going to be a harder play for the pitcher to cover first and our first base, we couldn't get back up. So I figured I think Mike Ford is on second base and I think uh, he was a good guy to take a chance on. So once I seen that DJ was probably going to be safe, I just spun props to Charlie Coberson for being right, right on the bag and putting a good tag down. If he didn't put a good tag down, it would have been safe. So takes good teammates to be aware. And I think when you make plays like that, it keeps your, your teammates engaged. They kind of just are ready for everything. So that was nice. The Luke Boyd one kind of was like a third base flashback of a ball that kind of hit down the line. And it was just, you know, in the sixth hole. And it just was like a third base flashback where uh, I just reacted. And I, you know, those are the plays I like. I like the plays where you just react. And I was able to get a good, good hop and turn it quick. Those plays are, you know, just they're a freak play, and um, you know, I was able to get we were able to get the double play. It was a you know it was a big highlight in my career. Now you mentioned that your run save might not be where you want it to be, but if you look at the Yankees as a whole, you're at short. Glaber moves to second. Donaldson and Lemayhew at third. Rizzo at first. And if we look at how often the Yankees turn ground balls into outs, they're the second most improved team in the majors this year, next to the Red Sox. And I'm curious, with all those guys that I mentioned, how does each of you help the other? We, have, we help each other a ton. They cut me off more than I've ever been cut off in my career. So it's definitely weird. It's definitely an adjustment, but they're just as good or better. So having them guys at that caliber around me, it makes my job a lot easier. And, you know, I think that's where you do see um, the numbers drop a little bit. But that's where the team, you know, the, our team numbers are off the charts. You know, I think JD is do, doing phenomenal right now. I think he's, you know, he's above five. DJ's got a bunch. Glaber's doing better than... 
he's ever done. And we're pushing Glaber every day. We keep telling him, hey, you need a gold glove. You need a gold glove because we got Rizzo with the platinum glove, me with a gold glove, and DJ with three gold gloves. And we're so we're trying to get Donaldson and, and um, Glaber gold gloves this year. And, you know, we're been really hard on them in, in a good way. But, you know, we're kind of joking around saying if we could get nine gold glovers, we'd probably win a World Series. So it's definitely possible. It's definitely hard. I'm seeing the Cardinals do that with their infield last year. So they definitely set the standard last year and we're trying to compete with that. And um, with what we got and, and the work that we've been putting in and the emphasis on defensive runs saved and how it helps us and how it helps the teams, we're really, you know, really going digging deep into the metrics and seeing how we can improve in those ways. Well, that's the, that leads to the next thing, which is positioning certainly being important. How intricate is the Yankees infield positioning system under Aaron Boone and company? It's awesome. You know, they're, they know what they're doing. I trust everything they do with, through, with analytics, through hitting, through fielding, uh, pitching. I mean, you just look at how they got Clay Holmes, you know, a guy that struggled with Pittsburgh. They're able to, to bring him here and he's able to have success. And, you know, just the trust of them bringing guys in, they know what they're looking for. And everyone has a reason for being on this team. So just kind of knowing what your role is and, and what they expect of us is, uh, you know, a big point. And for me, it's to lead the defense. And I'm, so far, I'm really happy with where everyone's numbers are and, and how we're helping the team win. We appreciate that you're constantly looking at defensive runs saved, not just for yourself, but for uh, everyone on the on the team. You seem to have very good self-awareness. I'm curious. I saw a, a thing about you working with an axe for one drill related thing is there anything that you're working on to improve your defensive game and uh yeah if you just want to share it you know i think for me the biggest thing for me is my range Um, i'm always wanting to improve my range and it was something that my high school coach taught me it was a drill that not many people know about and you know they might think it's eyewash but it's a drill i believe in and it's a range drill where if i'm playing shortstop i'll start behind second base and i'll get a jogging start and then i'll start sprinting and i have the fungal hitter hit it deep 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 in the hole that way I'm out of control. You know, I can't control my body. And that makes me slow down, feel the ball and have to, to make a tough play. And you do those enough, start getting used to, to the game speed balls and you're able to finish the play. And then you go to the backhand side where you're behind third base and you start sprinting and you have the coach hit it around second base. So you have to cover all that ground. You're out of control. You have to slow your body down while you're out of control, catch the ball and throw it. And then you can go into left field and have the fungal guy hit a slow roller and you get a, a sprinting start and you got to, you know, figure out how to make a bare hand play or get the short hop and, and make a throw. So I think that, you know, that drill really helped me. Um, we were doing that from seventh grade. So, and I still do it once in a while here when my body allows me to, because you don't want to do too much before the games and the big leagues is playing every day, but that drill um, by itself really helps me expand my range and, um, you know, make plays that, you know, you see Nolan Arenado making these crazy jumping throws and that drill kind of just brings it out and lets you build your own style of difficulty on some plays. Two last things before we let you go here. One is you caught and we actually had Dalton Varsho on. He was on our last podcast talking about playing catcher in center field. How did catching help you develop the rest of your game? It helped me in, in so many aspects of the game of, of, of understanding a pitcher. Pitchers want to save runs and we want to save runs. So just getting on the same page as the pitchers is, is a huge thing. So if you're if you're on the same page, especially with positioning, that allows the pitcher to trust you, uh, allows them to trust the coaches. You know, if they don't trust the positioning of the coaches, they get they get mad all the time. So kind of that aspect, just dumbing it down for them, I'm able to break stuff down. But 
I believe in building a floor. And I think for me, building that floor of a utility player really allows me to take everything I have to play shortstop. If you're ever struggling, you're not worried about being sent down. You're not worried about losing your job. You always got, you know, utility in your um, back pocket if you ever need to do it. So I think just the peace of mind of, of really building yourself a floor really allows you to excel and, and do things that, you know, you, you don't, you never thought you could do before. And we're certainly seeing that with uh, players, not just like yourself, but Tommy Edmund in St. Louis and a couple of others as well. So last question, just uh, we typically would do this. What advice do you have for players, say, at the maybe approaching high school level in terms of developing their defensive game to, to play like you? Try new positions. I think trying new positions really allows guys to um, you know, grow into themselves a little bit. Guys that stick to one position their whole career, they get to the pro level, they get to the college level, they're, they're not able to adjust, they're not able to learn a new position on the fly. I think the more positions you play, the more positions you understand at a young age, Instead of just saying, oh, I'm a catcher, oh, I'm a first baseman, the more positions you play, the more advanced you can get, you know, in a, in a knowledge standpoint. You're able to learn the game, understand where this guy is supposed to be, that guy is supposed to be. And when you know that, you know, it makes the game a lot easier. So I really believe in, in the more positions you play, the better. And I also believe in playing catch. Playing, you know, all we do in baseball is play, play catch. That's one thing that people don't really focus on. They want to focus on the, the tough plays and, and all that. But at the end of the day, you're really just playing catch. So, you know, young kids, they really need to focus on that. And if they can, you know, it'll help elevate their game. Isaiah Kiner for left. I keep watching your defensive run save. We're hopeful that they'll go uh, up for you this year. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm Justin Stein, producer of the SIS family of podcasts. I want to tell you about our football podcast, Off the Charts, hosted by Matt Manicharian. Off the Charts takes an in-depth look at everything going on in the NFL. Matt and his guest analysts blend scouting and analytics. They offer insight on coaching philosophies, player evaluation, strategy, and much more. Listen to this show and you'll be a smarter football fan. That's off the charts wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Isaiah Kiner-Falefa for joining us. The Yankees infield ranks as the second most improved at turning ground balls and bunts into outs this season. The Red Sox infield ranks number one. Tuesday, we published an article at sportsinfosolutions.com laying out what happened, how Trevor's story changed the look of the defense, how Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, and Bobby Dahlbeck made improvements to their game, and how the team's defensive positioning was on point. Manager Alex Cora was asked about this in his pregame press conference on Tuesday. Thanks to Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, we can share what Cora had to say about his team's defensive excellence. Uh, how would you characterize uh, your infield defense this year? Well, I mean, that's a great topic. You know, today's a great day. I got an article today from my, my friend, Mark Simon, you know, explaining how better we are defensively. And uh, for all the criticism, you know, Xander and Rafi has gotten the last few years, they put a lot of work in the offseason, and we see the results. And it's not a small sample size because we have played 60 games, so I can talk about them now, you know, and uh, there's a lot of things that they did in the offseason that we asked them to do in November that is paying off. Uh, narrow setup, you know, first step quickness. Uh, Rafi did other things that uh, throughout the season I learned about it that uh, has helped him, you know, and uh, in the article it was there talking about uh, slow rollers and the way he's converting those. 
That's something that uh, he worked so hard in the offseason and he's doing, and obviously what Trevor brings to the equation of first base, what Bobby has done. And, um, you know, he started in spring training. Uh, started in spring training in 2020, actually. You know, uh, you guys weren't there, but uh, the whole setup with the defensive thing and uh, – you know, it took us a while, but to see where we are right now is uh, it's a testament of the players and that coaching staff down there. Uh, you know, Foxy, Ramon, and um, Carlos have been relentless as far as the preparation. Will has been outstanding with the outfielders, tech with the catchers. Uh, Darren Fenster, um, when we went down there early in camp, when the big leaders were in there, we saw a lot of stuff that he was doing that we actually took to the big camp, you know, four corners and slow rollers and all that. So it's been a total organizational effort. And for us to be in this situation, it's, it's more about them than, than anybody else. You know, the effort of the player, but the paying attention to details with the coaching staff. So it's, 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 it felt good today, this morning, just reading about it. And, uh, you know, we, we have a good team. You know, we run the base as well. We can play defense, we pitch, we hit. So. Um, obviously, the record is the record. I know where we at, but as far as like the aspects of the game, we're doing an outstanding job. How much does that change the flow of the game, the way the usage of the starting staff? Like last year, there were so like you know, we all saw the expected batting averages versus batting averages for all three starting pitchers. Big gap. Yeah, but I, I do believe that there were like three games last year that threw the stats off. Uh, that was there was a game in the meeting against Eduardo. That they just hit ground balls the other way, and they don't. They don't usually do that and do that. They don't hit ground balls. They hit fly balls. There was another one in Texas with uh, with Eduardo too. Probably our pitching staff is is different, you know, because with Martin and Eduardo, there was a lot of contact, and people, you know, were shooting the ball the other way, and that's why it looked like, you know, we weren't getting to ground balls. Sometimes it's luck, right? And uh, it seems like since spring training this year. It feels like the ball is going to the right place, you know, and that's to our fielder. And uh, the other thing, too, <clears throat> we've been talking about Trevor offensively, but he's becoming a force at second base. Uh, the range and the, the quickness uh, is, is real, and he has changed kind of like the complexion of our infielders. But at the same time, the other two have been solid, you know, really good. And uh, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it feels different. It feels different. He's helping everybody out. One of the three things you were mentioning the article, I think you mentioned two, but the other was positioning. And has that, has that surprised? Has that been a dramatic shift for you? A few, a few adjustments. Uh, Dave Miller, uh, who's in charge of positioning with uh, with Jeb, uh, throughout the offseason, they, they were relentless. And it's not only studying what we do, but studying what other teams do. And, uh, you know, they, they do an amazing job before the series, making adjustments. Uh, you know, it's not about there's certain times that you go on the road and you haven't played a team and you look where other teams, what other teams do. You know, that's Carlos watching video, Ramon and Foxy, and then they get together and then come to the conclusion, this is what we're going to do. Uh, perfect example, Crawford this weekend. Uh, he got a few ground balls the other way, but we stayed true to our process and you know, we won. In one situations, we kept Rafi there. And he had two ground balls to him towards the end of the game. Uh, so uh, it's been it's been solid. I'm very proud of the whole department. That's something that, uh, you know, as a manager coming in, you know, I wasn't a great hitter. I always pride myself on playing good defense and all that. And sometimes it, it will frustrate me, you know, that we, we weren't up there numbers-wise. But the other thing, like I always said, in October, they become good defenders. 
So, you know, Xander makes all the plays, Rafi makes all the plays. So it's a mindset too. And this year, you saw it with the beginning, make plays with the shirts in spring training, the information they're getting uh, on a daily basis uh, from, from the information department. They're buying into it. And Carlos mentioned it the other day in Seattle. Now they're not afraid to talk about errors. You know, they used to shy away. You know, they make an error and we'll, you know, bother them for two or three days. Now they talk about the mechanics, what happened in that play. Oh, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. So uh, the same way they, they talk about offense, they're doing it defensively. And that's a different mindset. And it's going. Our usual spot as we dig deeper with Bobby Scales, Vice President of Baseball at Sports Info Solutions, a number of things that we want to talk about today, all of which I think have the theme of learning. And I think the first would be off of some of the comments that you might have just heard from Alex Cora and the Red Sox and what was their learning that uh, came into play here? Well, I think the data gives us an opportunity to have a deeper dive into into a lot of different things, right? And I think that you know one of the things that Alex talked about he didn't speak to it directly, but what he ended up saying indirectly was the uh, amount of collaboration that goes into making a major league baseball player better. Okay. And, and here's what I'm getting at. So we have, we have, you know, defensive run saves. We have any, any number of objective metrics that tell us, okay, these players are doing X, Y, Z defensively, right? We have other tools that tell us what balls they're struggling on, whether it be a ball to the right, a ball to the left, the backhand, the forehand, the one that takes them a little bit away from the infield, the slow roller, right? And one thing that I'll say is that, is that when, when I was with Pittsburgh, we, we, had, we did a nice job of, of isolating the types of plays that most of the infielders get. Here's what I'm saying. On the corners, what we know is that most, pl- most plays are made north and south, whether it means you have to give ground to, f- to field the ball or you have to come in on a slow roller and, and gain ground to, to, to field the ball. What we know in the middle of the field is that most of those plays are made east and west. Yes, you're going to have the occasional slow roller where you need to come in and field the ball. But for the most part, those balls are hit with enough velocity to get to you if you can get to it. But they're made east and west. That being said, this now brings in the holistic nature of making a baseball player better. Here's how. We know that a, that a player player X struggles with a ball to his right or to his left, right? And Alex kind of spoke spoke to that. So how can we, as a strength conditioning staff, you take that to your strength conditioning staff, how can we make him better? How can we give him an, a better base to set up with? So now you're designing strength, strength, strength exercises in the gym to speak directly to that. I'll say this, we went so far as to change the dynamic warm-up and the lifting program for corner guys as opposed to middle guys in Pittsburgh when I was there because we understood that it dif- different positions require different skills and we need to warm up our athletes and condition our athletes accordingly. So he talked about the narrowing the stance of Rafael as he you know as he got into his ready his ready position, okay? And I'm sure that he spoke with 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 strength and conditioning. He spoke probably with the ATCs. Are there any are there any deficits in his hips? Are there deficits in his knees and ankles that that preclude him from making certain movements? And how can we either one train around them or two correct them and then strengthen them? Right. That goes specifically into how you train your athletes. The second piece is he spoke about Darren Fenster, who is an unbelievable baseball coach. Darren, he's a I know at one point he was a manager in the Red Sox system. I know at one point he did the outfield base running coordinator in the, in the in the Red Sox system. And now, if I'm not mistaken, he's the infield coordinator over there too. And he he understood. He talked about how he went to the minor league camp before 
Darren was probably part of spring training and he introduced those guys to some new, some drills that they probably either haven't done since they've gotten to the big leagues or some things that they've never been exposed to in an effort to do what? Basically get back to the fundamentals. The, the, the four corner drill is a drill. You can do 97 different drills off of that, depending on the, on the caliber of uh, the skill level of your athlete, the maturity of your athlete, or you can do some really basic things to just, at the end of the day, this, this game is about catching the ball and throwing it straight. And the team that plays catch the best usually wins the game. Okay. It's a very simplistic way of saying that, but it's the truth. Bobby scales Isaiah Kiner-Falefa on the same wavelength here. We talked with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. He brought up the idea of playing catch. That's right. And so when you pair, okay, we've got information from the guys upstairs. They're bringing us information, telling us, okay, we have deficiencies here. You take that information and you go to SNC. Okay. Hey, listen, what do you think? Hey, hey, Rafael, what do you think about narrowing your stance? And here's how we're going to go about doing it. Okay. Then you take it out to, he reached out into the minor leagues. He showed collaboration. Alex Cora was an excellent infielder. He won't say that because he's humble. He'll say he's, I was just a good glove man. Alex Cora was an excellent infielder. And you don't, you don't hang around the major leagues as long as he did just by being a good guy. You got to bring something to the table each and every day. And he brought his glove. And I'm sure some of the things that Darren showed him were either probably new to him or things that I won't say he forgot. But a lot of times when you're amongst the elite of the elite all the time, you do tend to look over some of those things. He And it, it was enough security in Alex's, enough security in himself to say, hey, listen, I'm going to turn this over to you. You show these guys what they're doing, you know, what to do and, and work with these guys. And, and he showed trust in his staff. He showed trust in his minor league staff. So when you put all that together, that level of holistic inclusive Im- improvement it speaks volumes to alex as a as a as a leader and, and it shows what happens when all of your people all the people in your organization are on the same page with the mission of getting them getting players better you see what what the tangible benefits are so not to mention let's be honest when you bring a guy like trevor story in, who is a good shortstop and you move him to second base your infield just got better but but bringing all that together and putting it putting a bow on it that that shows a lot of really hard work by everybody involved, from the analysts to the S and C guys to guys like Darren Fenster and the other coaches that he mentioned. It's it's really impressive to hear that. I I, I could go on for a week on this and how how impressive it is. And it's a leadership lesson, and it's a baseball lesson. But it's really for me, it's a life lesson on how to get people involved and, and let people who are good at what they do do what they do and be part of of making an operation better. And for those listeners that are unfamiliar, uh, Bobby Scales, former leader in the area of player development for the Major League team. Let's move on to someone that we talked about previously, who now is trending up. Uh, Hunter Green has had a particularly impressive last couple of starts. We talked about him when he was at his low point. Now I feel like we got to talk about him. I know you do. You feel like you've got to talk about him as he's starting to uh, ascend. Without question. I think that if I'm not mistaken, too, and I heard this stat, I'll give I'll give this credit to to uh, one of the morning shows on on MLB taking my son to summer camp, and I heard it on the uh, on the radio this morning on Sirius XM. But they were thirty, or they were three and twenty two to start. They've been nineteen and seventeen since this is Cincinnati Reds, and, and Hunter Green's been right in the middle of it. Really rocky start out the gate. A bunch of balls left the yard, and part of that was because he was behind pretty much everybody. And big league hitters hit mistakes in the middle of the plate when they're in plus counts. Well, he's done an unbelievable job of locating his fastball, getting back in the strike zone, throwing a boatload of strikes. The strikeouts are up. This walks are down and the ball has stayed in the yard. He's not given up a homer in June and he's pitching outstanding. This is you talk about learning. It's hard to be a big leaguer. They're pretty good. 
everybody up there is pretty good. And this young man is gifted and he's really intelligent. And I said before he'd figure it out, he's starting to get it. This is not going to be the only stretch. He, that first stretch was not going to be the only time he struggles in the major leagues. But what's going to happen now is the periods of time which he struggles are going to be shorter and fewer and further between. So like you said, got to give the young man credit where credit is due. It was a really rocky start. I, I, I had predicted based on his talent. And again, I, I don't know him. I know people who are very who do know him well. Makeup is off the charts. 80, what we say, eighty makeup in the industry. He was going to figure it out, and he's begun to figure it out a little bit. So, batting average against is down. Whip is way down. Strikeouts are up. Walks are down. I mean, this is trending in a really good direction for a team that's playing some pretty good baseball right now. So, credit to him and that coaching staff and the in the people that help them. Guys don't do this by themselves. Certainly they figure things out and they have to perform, but there's a lot of help that goes on behind the scenes that people never see. Hunter Green is certainly trending upwards. And we always seem to run into some sort of personal story with you. And I think here, if we're going to stick with the lessons learned theme, do you have a favorite lesson that you learned from your playing days? You know, it's interesting. I talked about all the help that you get from coaches and coaches, 99% of them are well-meaning. One of the biggest lessons I learned was to continue to be who I was throughout my minor league career. I, I was probably overcoachable. I wanted to, I wasn't, I don't say I was a people pleaser, but I didn't want to be that guy that was like a coach comes now here I am. I'm sitting in a ball or I'm sitting in double a and a coach that's got multiple years of big league experience as a player come up to me. Hey, you need to, have you ever thought about doing this or you need to do that? Well, I'm learning how to be a big leaguer and that guy has been a big leaguer. So I would probably, it would probably behoove me to take his advice. And, I, and a lot of times I would try things that weren't necessarily me, right? So I'll say this, over the course of my career, right? If you're in the minor leagues, you're going to play 140, let's call it 140 games. If you play every day, you're going to get in the neighborhood of 550, 560 plate appearances. So obviously, depending on how much you walk, you're going to end up around, I don't know, 480, 500 at-bats, right? That's probably on average. Well, I was never an everyday player coming through the minor leagues except towards the end of my career. But I'll say all that to say this. I probably gave away in my career five to 600 at bats trying things that other people wanted me to do. I had a bit of a funky approach, especially from the left side. It was a little bit different. It was a lot to manage, but I knew it. I knew myself. And this, this last story, I'll, I'll tell you this. It, it was 2010 and I was an older player. So I was 30. No, I'm sorry. I was, uh, I was 32 at the time. It was, 2000, it was spring training 2011. Rudy Jaramillo had just got hired as hitting coach in Chicago, and I was in big league camp. I had finished 2009 and 2010 in the major leagues for the Cubs. Jim Hendry called me in the offseason and said, look, you come to camp, you have a good camp. You got a realistic chance of making this club. Now, I'm, I'm what, 13, 12 years deep into my career. I had never heard that from a major league GM. So I come to camp, and everything's great, and Rudy's coming in, and he's got his system. I mean, he, this is a guy who had you know, the, the, a young Michael Young. He had Sammy. He had all those. Marlon Bird, he had all those guys who were really banging in, in Texas during that time. And he's a great coach. And, and Rudy's a great guy. And he said, I'd like to see you guys do this and that and this and that. And, and, and one day in the cage, it was just me and him. It was after, after a game. All the other guys had gone. And, I, and he wanted me to do this and that, this and that. And I said, Rudy, I said, listen, this is the first time in my career a major league GM called me. And he said, if you have a good spring training, you have a legitimate chance of making this major league roster for an opening day. I said, do respect. I, I know who you've worked with. And I, and I think what you're doing is, is, all, is, is real and right. But I haven't done that all offseason. And so can I, can, I just, can I just do what I do? Can you, I mean, are you okay with it? Now, now, 
people think like, you know, you're a big leaguer, you know what you're doing. And, and I, to a certain extent I did, but I was a young big leaguer who happened to be a little bit older. So <laughs> I wasn't in a position to say, Hey, Rudy, I got it. Leave me alone. Cause my track record didn't say that, but I can't, and to his credit, I came to him and I said that he goes, kid, do what you got to do to make this club. I'm in your corner. And, and then the cool part was he wanted to, he wanted to know more about what, how I went about it. Cause he said, you got a funky little approach. And I go, I do, I do, but I, I know how to manage it. He says, okay. And we had a, we had a great little dialogue. I ended up not making the team. I was the 26 man. Blake DeWitt got the nod over me and those things happened. And I ended up in Japan. So the story's fine. But, but the point is like, just getting to a point where you know yourself and you've learned the things that you do, the things you do well and the things that you need and being confident enough to say, Hey, listen, I absolutely appreciate where you're coming from. These are the things that I do. My approach is a little funky. And and how can we get on the same page? And and fortunately, Rudy was, um, you know, he was fine with that. And, and I think, I think more coaches are fine with that now, as opposed to a little bit earlier on in, 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 in baseball or in other sports. Be who you are. That an important lesson, whether you're Bobby Scales or the subject of our uh, next guest, Ricky Henderson, whose biography we're going to talk about with Howard Bryant. Bobby, thank you for taking the time to join us. Mark, always a pleasure. Before we move on to our next guest, make sure you're following us on Twitter for all the latest baseball insights. We've got daily fantasy tips, player leaderboards, prospects to watch, and much more. Find us at SIS underscore baseball. We welcome in Howard Bryant, the author of Ricky, the life and legend of an American original, the definitive Ricky Henderson biography. Howard's written nine other books, a wonderful biography of Hank Aaron among them. His work covers the intersection of race and sport. And if you're a book lover, I'm hoping you'll like this. I describe this as a baseball story written with the intensity of a David Moranis or Walter Isaacson biography of a political figure because it's so thorough. Howard, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you. So we're in Defense First podcast. Ricky Henderson's defensive metrics were very good in the early part of his career, in particular, if you use some of the precursors to things like defensive run saved. What's your best Ricky Henderson defense-related story? Well, I think the, the thing about Ricky is that people underrated his, his defense. He was a gold glove winner. And when people think about Ricky, they very rarely place his defense up there because he didn't necessarily have the strongest arm. What Ricky did, he's really cut balls off very quickly. Um, got in. I think my favorite Ricky, my favorite Ricky defensive story is not a, a specific play, but it was a negotiation. It was in 1985 when he joined the Yankees. The he was a center fielder. They had moved Omar Moreno out. Dave Winfield was right field. Ken Griffey was left field. And here is Ricky playing. In, a, in the biggest center field, one of the biggest center fields in baseball, and obviously one of the biggest left center field. And so one of the things he and both Dave Winfield did as they, before they moved the fences in was to say, listen, if you want me to steal bases, you got to move the fences in. And I don't think anybody had ever really thought about the effect of playing in such a big park on his offense. My favorite piece of that defensively was the fact that as a defensive player, one thing that Ricky had done, and it's been done pre previously, you know, by Willie Mays, obviously, he was copying Mays so much that he tried to play as shallow a center field as possible. And as we got, you know, as later in his career, as he became really more of an offensive player, became known as a power hitter from the leadoff spot, and people forgot his defense. 
and Ricky had clearly been one of the one of the finer defensive players in the game. When I think most people think of Ricky and Ricky's defense, they think of the snatch catch, right? Well, I didn't mention the snatch catch because to me the snatch catch wasn't defensive; it was more style. If you're asking me about the uh, about my favorite Ricky moment in the field, sure. it has to, of course, be 1983 where Mike Warren has thrown a no-hitter and Carlton Fisk is up with two outs in the top of the ninth. And Fisk, a future Hall of Famer, hits a fly ball out to left field, which should be the final out of Mike Warren's no-hitter. And Ricky's camped under it with plenty of time to end the game. And when he catches the ball, he slaps the ball off of his hip, which is the beginning of the snatch catch. (laughs) And it's one thing to incorporate that piece of style into your game. It's another thing to do it on the final out of a no-hitter. <laughs> that's great. So you mentioned 1983. I'm partial to anything 1982 related because that's my first year watching baseball games. Ricky stole 130 bases that year. I remember living through that. I remember through, uh, living through a number of things, including the Braves' long winning streak, kind of parallel to the 2022. What was stealing a base like for him and what went into it? With Ricky, I mean, I think that he had said early on, even when he was being scouted in high school, that one of his goals or his goal was to be the greatest base stealer of all time. And for him, that measure was numbers, was to break Lou Brock's record. And I think that, but what he really wanted as he matured, as the as he began his career, was he saw the stolen base as the the means to the greatest end, which is to score runs. So even though we know him as the greatest base dealer of all time, which he was, what he really wanted was the was the all-time runs record. So for Ricky, stealing a base was as it was the most impudent thing you can do on a baseball diamond. You were taking on the catcher. You were really stealing off the pitcher. Rich, Ricky never stole off the catcher. So it really was a game between him and the and the pitcher. He stole head first because he was afraid of breaking his ankles into the base. It wasn't anything about trying to get to the base fast or anything like that. He was just nervous about about hurting his legs. The other thing about Ricky that was sort of amazing was that the equipment was really central to him. When he played with the A's, the A's wore they they wore beltless pants. They wore elastic band elastic waist pants. When he played in the minor leagues, the A's, the Jersey City team, they wore belt buckles. Something that none of us ever think of. And of course, Ricky thought about it because when he was learning how to steal head first, the belt buckle flipped inside out. And while he was sliding, essentially gashed his abdomen. He's got a scar on his mm. on his stomach. And so when he joined the Yankees, he dreaded going in head first because the Yankees had belts with their uniforms as well. So all of these different things that go into it. And of course, my favorite piece of Ricky stealing a base and what it meant to him was the the line that he gave Jeff Idelson, the former president of the Baseball Hall of Fame, where he was trying to explain the aerodynamics of base stealing. And he says, you know, you know how it, you know, you ever been on a jet, on an airplane? He says, yeah. He says, that's me. I'm like an airplane. And he was trying to explain how the goal was to to, to get his head face down into the base before the rest of his body. It was a hilarious explanation of aerodynamics. <laughs> The level of detail that you're sharing is similar to the level of detail in the book, and I think that's cool that it it goes right with the level of detail with which he played. Do you have a favorite Ricky Henderson season? Well, absolutely. I think my favorite Ricky season has got to be 89. It's got to be 89 because of all of, because of the arc of it. We have reached the end of the Ricky story in New York City, that the Yankees are now a bad team. 
they start out in 1985 when Ricky gets there with World Series aspirations, but now it's just it's just rot. They're not very good. Everybody else in the league, in the American League, has really outpaced them. And they're on the free fall. And they start the season. Ricky's contract is up at the end of the year. Everyone is talking about whether or not he wants to re-up. He says he wants to stay. But everybody knows what's really happening is that that relationship is over. And in a lot of ways. And Ricky has one of the great, great seasons of all time in 1985. He scores 146 runs in 143 games. He, he steals 80 bases in 90 attempts. He's incredible. And, but by the end, people are looking at him as a loser. He's the guy who is not a winning ball player. He's the guy, he's a compiler. He puts up big numbers, but his teams don't win. And so all of the rot of the 80s gets heaped on his shoulders. And so by we, by the time we get to, to June, Ricky's on the trade block and he gets traded to Oakland and this is it for him. This is the culmination. This is the beginning of, of one of the great, great 18 month stretches in baseball history where Ricky just turns it on and becomes the player, the legendary player that we knew that, that we now know. It, he goes crazy. He was hitting 243 when he got traded to the, uh, to the A's and hits you know over 350 going into you know the first couple stretches in Oakland and then in the postseason just goes absolutely insane destroys the Toronto Blue Jays in the ALCS follows it up by hitting 474 against the Giants in the World Series though it was marred by the earthquake and to me I love that season because this is what a champion does. Ricky wanted to prove that he was a championship level ball player, that he wasn't a loser, that he wasn't a guy who compiled, that people, he had been in the league, it was his 11th season, and people didn't even talk about him as a, as a, as a lock hall of famer. And this is the stretch where he really went into supernova where this is the Ricky Henderson that we now know that can just take over a game, do whatever he wanted, and just prove that he was the most dominant player on the field at any given time. 3,055 hits, 2,295 runs squared, 1,406 stolen bases. It's, and don't I, forget the walks, and Ricky will tell you first that he is actually the, the all-time walks king. He was when he retired, and Barry Bonds eventually broke that record. But in Ricky's case, he says, nobody, nobody intentionally walked me. All those <laughs> intentional walks, they shouldn't, they shouldn't count. I yeah. earned my walks. Nobody walked more than I did, even though Bonds, of course... Get 120 intentional passes one year. 2,190 walks as well. Is there any player who has an aspect of their game? Because I feel it's silly to say who's, who parallels Ricky Henderson. But is there any player like an aspect, a singular aspect of their game that kind of matches up with Ricky Henderson, current player? Current player? Yeah, absolutely. I asked Billy Bean about this, and I said, if you, if you had Ricky today... First, he interrupted me and said, if we had Ricky today, based on our advanced metrics and how we evaluate the game, you couldn't pay Ricky enough. He'd be by far the most valuable player in the game. And I said, well, who's the comp? And he says, the comp is Mike Trout. He says, if he, he'd be very similar to Trout. He says, he doesn't have Mike Trout's power, but Ricky had plenty of power. Ricky has easily 30 home run power. He never hit 30 in a season, 28 twice. But Billy said that he felt like what they would do is that they would em they would emphasize Ricky's power over his speed, whereas when he was playing, they emphasized the speed over the power. And he wouldn't steal as many bases, but he would be an even more dangerous of an uh, an offensive player, and maybe he would be a three hitter and not a and and not a leadoff guy. And I listened to this, and Billy was saying it as a compliment of Ricky's versatility and his and and his potency. 
Well, I, I look at it differently. To me, to not have Ricky Henderson at the top of your lineup, to not have Ricky Henderson's speed emphasized in addition to the power, is not quite Ricky Henderson. It's not quite the player that we remember. The reason why we remember Ricky wasn't because he had power. Everybody had power. A lot of power hitters out there, obviously. The difference was was that you didn't expect power from him, from his position. So if you're going to make him a three-hitter, I don't think he's as dangerous. If he's not going to steal at will, if he's not going to take third when he needs to or when he wants to, or steal 100 bases, are you really talking about the same dangerous player, even though you're looking at a very similar skill set? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Bill James said that you could cut Ricky Henderson in half and have two Hall of Famers. I actually tried to do that last night with his career, kind of chopping it up into different in different ways. And I think he's pretty close, which I thought was pretty cool. There's a whole other aspect to this book, the cultural aspect, how flamboyant black players in the 1980s were viewed as selfish when they hit free agency and asked for big money. There's the Hall of Fame speech that Ricky Henderson gave that I think there was a certain bar of expectation for, and he far exceeded the bar. It was a wonderful speech. What do you want people to get out of this book with regards to to that aspect? I think, for me, the the story arc, the arc of time is is really something that moved me and and motivated me to to write this book. That you're looking at a player who, when he entered the league, was not a very popular player. In fact, at one point in in the league in the mid-80s, he was one of the most disliked players in the game for numerous reasons. For his style of play, for his insistence of being on being paid what he was worth, or what he believed he was worth, for his aloofness in terms of him not necessarily following all of the conventions, for advocating for himself against advocating for what the team wanted in a lot of instances. And in many of those instances, the team, history would prove the team to be wrong. He bet on himself in many, many ways. And yet, yet to go from that to the end of his career, where he becomes this incredibly lovable figure, where people want to tell Ricky stories, where they can't separate the fact from the fiction, where Ricky becomes this combination of Yogi Berra and Satchel Paige, he becomes this American treasure. I wanted to track that arc. And I thought, I think it's appropriate. It's a very American story where you have somebody whose sheer dominance and longevity made the public sort of turn toward him. And that's really, in a lot of ways, what this story is about. Definitely one of a kind. Uh, the book's fantastic. Howard Bryant, thank you for taking the time to join us. You can get it wherever you get your books. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. This wraps up our episode. You can find us on Twitter at SIS underscore baseball. I'm at Mark A. Simon Says. And check out our articles at sportsinfosolutions.com. For Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, Bobby Scales, and Howard Bryant, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.